Hi there, I'm John Sepulveda. I'm one of the producers here at The Future of What. And this week I'm filling in for Portia Sabin. We got a really killer episode from Washington, D.C. We were just there for the Future of Music Policy Summit, where we heard from some of the smartest people in the industry. Over the next few weeks, we'll be rolling out different conversations from and inspired by the conference. We wanted to give you a flavor of some of the discussions that happened there, including this one you're about to hear, featuring Portia and Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards. This is the keynote address that opened the Future of Music Coalition conference. Here's Portia Sabin and Meryl Garbus. Hi, Meryl. Hi, Portia. How are you doing? I'm great. Good to be here. Hello, Excellent. everyone. Yeah. Thanks for coming out on Monday morning, you guys. This is great turnout for where are we again? <laughs> I feel super jet lagged. I don't know why. Shouldn't. Uh, anyway, so let me just quickly tell everybody, uh, my name's Portia. I have a radio show called The Future of What, which is all about the music business. It's also a podcast, which you can get on Bandcamp. And uh, we're very excited to talk to Meryl today because Meryl is, of course, as everyone knows, a fantastic artist. Uh, but the point of my radio show is basically to uh, educate people about the music business, what we all in this room, many of us in this room actually do on a day-to-day -day basis so that we can keep a culture alive so that a fabulous artist like Meryl Garbus can continue making music and doesn't have to flip burgers instead. That's the plan. Thank you. <laughs> We're, we'll hope for that. Um, so let's get started by just tell everybody, how did you get into playing music in the first place? Um, that's a good question. And I guess I, I also want to say I feel totally floored by the New Orleans conversation that just happened. Um, and, and I guess uh, it, feels, it feels very strange because it was 10 years ago that I started touring on my own with Tune Yards. So, and I remember the first, in those first months, I was in Toronto and, it, and that's where I was when I heard the news of Katrina. Um, so it's interesting to parallel uh, my, you know, my my music career with, um, with just what's happened to our world over the past ten years and what's happened to our country over the past ten years, um, but also to to feel um, honored and what's the word? I feel almost speechless that I get to sit up here as a musician and speak. Um, speak as a musician and be part of a tradition of musicians and traveling musicians. Um, my parents are both musicians. My mom is a piano teacher, uh, taught me for seven years until I was a teenager and couldn't stand it anymore. Um, and uh, my, my parents met playing old-timey music in uh, the 60s revival, 60s and 70s revival of, of American folk music. Um, my mom is from Kentucky and came out of a tradition of Appalachian folk music. Um, uh, so it's deep, it's deep in me. <laughs> um, but I went to school for theater and I studied performance and studied um, experimental, strange physical theater. And, um, and after four years as a puppeteer, discovered that what I liked about puppeteering most was writing songs about things. So uh, I shifted my focus in 2005 and quit my flipping burgers, which was really, you know, somehow making a living as a puppeteer. Uh, <laughs> I switched that to, uh, I'm serious, 2004, I made all of my income as a puppeteer. Can you believe that? Um, so I switched that and, and started playing ukulele at open mics and writing songs and, uh, and then discovered, uh, a friend of mine was like, you know, if, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna stand up in front of people and play the ukulele, I might recommend that you use this thing called a looping pedal, which might help you, you know, make this a little bit more interesting for yourself. <laughs> um, so I started, I started looping and, um, and that became looping with drums and uh, trying to create a world of sound on my own as a solo performer. And that was, I mean, for me, when I first saw you, I saw you in the basement of a venue in Portland mm -hmm. in 2009, it must have been, because mm -hmm. it was Marriage Records had just put out mm -hmm. your first record on vinyl. Mm -hmm. And I was in the worst mood that night. I really didn't want to go out. I was like, 
I had a big fight with my husband, and I was like, <laughs> and I, I remember standing, and then I was like, oh great, it's in a basement too. So then I was in a basement. Mm -hmm. And there were about, as far as I can recall, like 10 people. Oh, there. yeah. I mean, it was, it was. Oh, yeah. It was yeah, rough. Including me. It was 10 mm -hmm. people. Yeah, it was mm -hmm. fantastic. And mm -hmm. you. And was, me. <laughs> yeah, and I was just so annoyed. And you got on stage and you start, you know, unpacking this ukulele <laughs> and stuff. And I was like. <laughs> another, another chick with a ukulele. Yeah. And then you started to play. And I just remember, it was one of those things where I forgot everything I was feeling because cool. I was just blown away. I was like, what am I witnessing? This is unbelievable. Cool. Especially when you opened your mouth. That was really <laughs> quite an experience. And I feel like that is the power and the excitement of music when you see somebody doing something that you have never seen before. You know, it's just brand new. And that was... Because not, not tons of people were using looping at that point. After you, a whole bunch of people, I saw tons of people doing it. Eventually, I'd see somebody pull out their loop and I'd be like, oh, you know, why did I come out Another tonight? Another chick with a looping Another pedal. Another chick with a looping pedal. <laughs> right, but I feel that you started it. <laughs> or we're early in that. Um, but yeah, so it was really, I mean, that's such a, a, a joy to see somebody do something completely different. Well, thanks. I'm glad I brightened your mood that night. You really helped my life a lot, and it was good. Um, but I kind of wanted to talk more about that for you as an artist because you were doing something completely different. Do you feel like you have been able to sort of realize your own vision over the last three albums that you've put out? Yeah, yes. And I guess, you know, I, um, you know, I think I, there's a, a certain framing that I don't, that I don't, that I want to avoid. You know, I think, you know, because what happened to me was, um, I got in my little Chevy, which I'm still driving. It now has about 280,000 miles on it. I got in my little Chevy and I started touring from Montreal, where I was living at the time, around the country. And, um, and you know, that those first five years or four or five years before there was a record label involved at all was this really glorious time of... Um, I'm kind of interested to, to hear this, you know, over these next two days, what, what gets talked about. There's, a, there's an underground scene of musicians who are, um, who are putting on their own shows in basements, in houses, in um, DIY venues that tend to get shut down after a few months oper in operation. Um, when, I, when I started touring, it was the age of MySpace. So I had my little MySpace icon, remember those? Um, with my little picture and Tunyards spelled with the annoying capitalization because it looked cool and I thought maybe more people would notice it if it looked weird. Um, and I had this network of, of musicians. I could say, okay, I'm going to, I wanna go to Detroit. You know, the, the, we're gonna route this tour. It goes Montreal, Toronto, Detroit. So I would, you know, search for Detroit and I'd look at, at MySpace and I'd look at bands who were performing, which venues they were performing at, which bands they were affiliated with. Um, and there's this whole network of bands who, who would say, oh yeah, your, your music's pretty cool, why don't you come and join this show um, where such and such band is playing and we know that we'll bring 50 people to the club at least so we can, you know, we'll pass around the hat and, you know, you'll get something. And, and we did that, you know, we did that for, I did that with my other band and then I did that solo for about four years, and that was, it's like the, you know, the university of DIY touring, um, just learning how to do that and learning how to make that financially work. Um, you know, then, I guess what I want to say about narrative is that there, there's this, um, my story is very much a success story of that, I think, that then, you know, one record, a small record label put out the album, then the larger uh, label, 4AD, Beggars Group saw me and decided to put out that same album. I signed a record contract for more albums, and and generally, you know, although there are of course ups and downs, my career has been in what direction? That way, that way. Which way are you looking? Um, it, it's all grown from there, you know. But um, but I, you know, and now I find myself in this different position where I, where I suddenly am am looking. Um, from a different perspective of the music industry. And I think, you know, what I got out of the New Orleans conversation is like, 
there's an invisible world that that is not that is often not part of these conversations that we're having about industry, about technology, about policy, um, and we need to always keep our eye on that world. You know, we need to always remember that that world is not being spoken of. That that there are these things that we're we're glossing over, worlds that we're glossing over, and um, and you know. I think a, a community rot, <laughs> a rot that's, that happens in communities, um, particularly when things like this happen where entire communities are shoved out of the place that they've been for so long. So um, I was just on a tour with, with my beloved fiance who is also in Tune Yards, but he's starting his solo project. So there we were playing crappy bars in you know Lexington, Kentucky and playing for three people and um, it was really good to remember that that this again it's still going on uh, there's a hum of music scene that's going on in every town and every city across this country and, and around the world um, where where people you know are are in this dialogue of where they sit within the music industry I think there's a lot of you know how do I get signed to a record label how do I get um, you know how do I get a booking agent how do I get exposure? Um, but then there are people just making music all the time in their communities because they have to, because they love playing music. So did that answer your question? I can't, I have no idea what we're talking about now. It's, it's fine. It, you went in a good direction. Okay. I, I appreciate that. And that's kind of the point of this radio show too, is one of the things we're trying to do is we love to be a resource for musicians at all levels, you know, people who are sort of just starting out and because you know we can forget that although in my job it's hard to forget that because I get so many demos mm -hmm. and I'm always like really people really you still want to be a musician even in this day and age you know when yeah. maybe it's not the easiest thing I mean always. it was never the easiest <laughs> thing but now it's even it's you know you often are not going to get paid anything at all mm -hmm. in a lot of situations but but I think that's been true all along for a good a good number of musicians and I and I see that dialogue of you know I'm not sure. It, I mean, I'm I'm actually excited to learn over the next couple of days. Is it is that a myth? <laughs> is it a myth that it's harder than it used to be? Because it because it's always been hard, at least for a good number of of musicians, as far as I can tell. So you know, the industry again has these conversations about millions and billions of dollars. But but I wonder what you know. Who are the musicians who just are like you know? Well, keep on keep on chugging along the way that we always have because because a good chunk of musicians never have access to that stuff mm -hmm. up there. Um, so, so again, I, I put it to you and I'm curious because I, because I really want to know, I mean now, and, and I hope we can talk about this, but now there's, um, uh, you know, we've, now I have a bit more exposure, a bit more, I mean, plenty more um, power actually as a musician. And what really revolutionized my world was revolutions per minute. Um, was RPM who took me to New Orleans, and I think I think five years ago that was um, learning how to once you have exposure as an artist, then channel that into bringing exposure to other things that aren't getting exposure, and, and in fact raising money for those things. So um, so that that's been a wonderful you know I, I think being a, being a musician and being completely self centered about you know, how you, like, how do I make more money? Or how do I get more people to listen to me? After a while, that's boring, you know? I mean, what, what's, what was thrilling about music when I first started playing music was the community of musicians, you know, was, um, was connecting with other people, was, was, was connecting with the labels. I mean, Kill Rockstars is a revolutionary label, you know, and, and connecting with, um, you know, opening for for Tao, opening for Shushu, these bands that I had worshipped, you know, from from my lowly status as puppeteer. Um, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden being in conversation with those with those people um, and being treated as a peer um, that that was what was thrilling. You know, people who were whose ideas were revolutionary, whose musical ideas were really thrilling to me. Um, so when you get, you know, now now we this past time we were touring, we toured on a tour bus, and you know, it's like I'm there at night in this little death cocoon, riding on this bus, thinking, what is this for now? You know, because we have the audiences and we have, I mean, it's it's for you know, it's because I get to to get on stage every night and play music and do this for my living. But um, 
if it's disconnected from each of those communities that we end up parking our bus in every night, um, what's the use? And and why am I why am I performing, you know, in in Atlanta if I have no idea what's happening in in Atlanta, and if I'm disconnected from most of the people in Atlanta, and if our tickets have priced out most of the people in Atlanta who I'm who might be interested in coming to our shows, um, so I think. Wow, again, what was the question? <laughs> really I think, but I think that's a great I think that's a great point, but I would also want to counter it by saying that, you know, that is totally true and that's an aspect of this that you have to think of as a musician at your level, but also having achieved whatever this upward was, you're now more visible to some little girl somewhere mm -hmm. who otherwise would never have known mm -hmm. that she could maybe make a sound like that. Totally, you know? totally. And that is very important, Yeah. totally. And and yes, there have been little girls who come up just like, who, who is this? What is this thing? Yeah, and that absolutely has been, has been crucial to me. Yeah, because that's a huge part of this, you know, and it's, I feel like, as soon as you gain a platform in music, mm -hmm. it's, you're really, it's, it's gotta be good because, you know, you're, you're showing that there's a possibility for people who didn't know that that was possible. I mean, I used to think that, I remember when I was um, managing the gossip and we were in our first arena show in England opening for Scissors Sisters and Beth Ditto looked out in the crowd and she said, I don't think half of these people have ever heard the Ramones. <laughs> and I was like, you're right, they probably haven't, but after tonight they will have heard you. And that's the first step, you know? I mean, that's something really different. So I think it does make a difference. I and I I um I think it's also a challenge a challenge to I mean it's a challenge I always try to give myself but a challenge to musicians who have that platform because I think I think a lot of us get so consumed with again the drive you know how do I make it how do I make it how do I make it um, that 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 becomes the whole game instead of um, instead of why do, why did I play music to begin with what was exciting to me to play, you know, um, about playing music to begin with. I, I think um, we were having a conversation yesterday about, um, about licensing, which has always been a really tricky thing for me. Um, you know, when I, I think I saw, is it true that there was a Led Zeppelin song in a car commercial? Did that happen? Okay, so I remember I remember, yeah, you, it's the wonderful group of people who knows the answer to that question. Um, I, and I remember, you know, there, there have been plenty of times where, uh, or the Bob Dylan, Chrysler Friasco, or whatever it is, but, um, but uh, you know, that, that there's, um, there's a new conversation where I think now it's, it's versus when I started, you know, on, let's say, 10 years ago, it was much more of an issue for a musician to, you know, whether or not they would put their music in an ad. That was like, oh, that band really sold out. They put this, the, you know, they, they're making money this way. And this music that you're so attached to with so many ideas and so many emotions and, and so much, um, you know, allowing the individual to stay connected to a song um, is suddenly just another thing for sale in our society. Um, now I think the conversation has turned and, and it's turned for me too because suddenly, um, you know, as, as, you know, record sales, uh, record sales in a specific way are dwindling, there's a need for another type of income and that for us has become advertisements. Now I filter out, I would say, hundreds of thousands of dollars a, a record cycle of things I say no to because I don't want my music attached to that product. You know, alcohol, cigarettes, soda, cars, oil industry stuff is all stuff that I, I won't put, you know, I won't attach my music to. But, um, but there are certain things that, you know, feel either, you know, benign or, um, or at a certain point I go, shoot, we gotta make money somehow. I, I would like to, continue being a musician, you know? Um, so, so I think there's, you know, there's always for me this, um, you know, what, what are people, wh how am I a leader? You know, how am I um, a personality that, that I want people to, to um, not just personality, but, but the music itself. What are the, what am I saying in music? And what am I saying with my music? And what do I want people to, 
to really put their their trust in, and how am I, you know, potentially, um, you know, if I'm giving young people hope that there is a world without oil dependency, then putting my music in a car commercial is going to completely undermine that, um, for instance. But how do I how do I balance that with how I'm asked now to make a living, which is also you know, guzzling gasoline on a tour bus for months out of the year. So, um, so I think all to say, these are the challenges that I I feel now. Um, I have the privilege to face and kind of you know the privilege to 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 really engage. You know, I want to engage with my fans around this stuff. And and you know, there's there's been a lot of you know blowback that we've gotten. Um, I'm really disappointed that you put your music in that ad, and I want to, you know, converse with my fans. Okay, why and and how can we, you know, how can we make this better, and how can I do this better? That's really interesting. I didn't know that anyone had a problem with selling out anymore. I thought that just disappeared. <laughs> it's been so shockingly. I mean, the change was so fast, and I was mm -hmm. like, I mean, my record label is like the, you know, the, the, what do you call it, the the stalwart of never selling out. It's like exactly. I had just tons of bands on my label that. Mm -hmm. wouldn't do anything um, except for, you know, Deerhoof, who famously said they would never do an ad for anything except fruit. And then Lauren found them an ad for fruit juice <laughs> that paid like $80,000 or something. It was ridiculous. It was so awesome. And and are your bands still like that? I mean, are most of your bands refusing? Most no, no. Everything changed. Yeah. I feel like it was of Montreal in that Outback Steakhouse ad and boom. It's like... <laughs> Now everyone will do anything that mm -hmm. nobody cares anymore. The floodgates open. The floodgates open, except for Hummer. Hummer still is the pariah of the, you know, no one will do a Hummer ad. But other than that. <laughs> everyone has their lines. Exactly. But speaking of, you know, issues, do you want to talk about the water fountain a little bit? Do you want to talk about your... Sure, sure. Um, so, so one thing that... Um, that we've been able to do that's been um, one of those things on the tour bus that gives me feel makes me feel connected is is um, is that we take we secretly add on a dollar to every one of our tickets that we sell <laughs> um, we don't tell people that but that's what's happening and then we take that dollar and we put it in a fund and that that becomes a fund that we can um, you know, we we raised a lot of money through that fund, and then we disperse that to to different uh, charitable organizations, nonprofits that we believe are doing great stuff. So, um, so on this last album, uh, we the, we wrote a song called Water Fountain, and and it was a lot about. We I live in Oakland, California, and um, and you know, California is is in the middle of a, a really big drought, and Oakland is also in the midst of a huge transition. Um, I would say, in danger of losing a core of its community um, to gentrification. And, um, and also, uh, you know, and also deteriorating in its own ways, or at least when I was writing that song. So, so and I had just also gone to Haiti to spend a lot of time studying drumming there and, um, and learned a lot about the, the economy of Haiti as it pertained to the economy of, of my country, of the United States. So um, that song was grappling with all these things, and it became the song that a lot of companies were asking you know, for. Um, it, it was the hit song of the album, and ironically was talking about you know, a lot of anti-capitalist stuff. So it was like, you know, Starbucks really wants your water fountain song for its new summer line of iced drinks. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> Um, don't, that doesn't leave this room, by the way. Um, <laughs> that was a theoretical example. So, um, so I remember sitting in the record label office, cry I was like almost crying because they were like, you know, like you could win for you, blah, blah, thousands of dollars. Um, you've written this great song and now you deserve to just, you know, like bathe in cash or whatever, and um, and I kept saying no. I just said no, no, no. This this doesn't feel right. We said we used it for a couple of of animated things, um, you know, art, other other pieces of art that feels you know like a better way to use music for me. And then we got offered a big ad from um, Sonos to have our our music be part of uh, the Sonos uh, sound system. Um, 
ad campaign. And they presented us this really great ad and uh, it was these cool looking rainbow Lego looking building blocks uh, filling a room and um, Sonos is, a, is you know, a great supporter of, of musicians and how, and how to, um, you know, that music is the essence of why they, they are in existence as a company. Um, so we did a, a bunch of research and RPM, um, you know, as our, as our uh, what would you call it? They, RPM basically powers our nonprofit, uh, this little, um, it's not a nonprofit, but our little uh, charitable fund. So we had them suss out and I kept saying, no, 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 it doesn't feel right to put this song in an ad. But finally I said, if you give us X amount, we're gonna start a, a, water, a water charity with this. Um, and they agreed. So we were able to take that big chunk of money and, and uh, stick it in this fund and now have dispersed that to uh, several organizations that are doing work specifically with water, including water you know, drought issues for communities in Central California, um, some the Gulf Restoration Network in New Orleans, and, um, and partners in health in Haiti, and we still have more to give. So to me, this is, this really, you know, is also this really cool link between art and activism that, that, um, that always, that I always wanted to be part of Tune Yards, you know, that when I built, when I built the music project, it always felt like, um, this, this is music that, that wants to have a greater, uh, lens. It wants to look outward out into the world. It doesn't want to be its own thing that is just about popularity and just about getting people to like my music. It, it wants to refract stuff that's happening around the world. And, and this has been for me something that's so, um, selfishly satisfying, you know, to be able to, um, every time I play a show, instead of saying like, Oh, you know, there are 500 people I have to play in front of. It's like, okay, 500 bucks we made for the water fountain fund, you know? Um, and that, that is, um, I don't know. It really connects me with, again, my, um, my spiritual connection to music, my my greater intention with music, and and wanting to connect to people in that way, and certainly has also introduced me to a lot of people who are doing water activism around the world, which is great. Well, I think that's amazing. Can we give her a round of applause, please? That's super impressive. Oh, I'm glad you're doing that. That's really nice. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, not everybody uses their, their platform in a good way. So that's nice to hear that some people are doing that. Um, so what you got coming up next? Uh, I have to do something else? <laughs> yes, you Isn't do more. Isn't that enough? Right um, now. No, writing, writing more music and also uh, producing. I want to start a... Um, uh, I've been producing other people's music, and I don't know a lot of of women producers out there. I mean, there are tons of women producers out there, but very few of them um, have the kind of, uh, I don't know, the exposure that, um, the Skrillex exposure, should we call it that? Um, I, I just, so I wanna see more, more women in the industry in all, in all places, um, but particularly, you know, as a woman touring, uh, most, most of the, people that you meet on the road um, that I find myself surrounded with on the road have been men and which is great. I love spending time with men. And I also want to see more women, you know, at the soundboard, doing lights, uh, tour managing and, and every sector of the business. So, um, so what currently I'm interested in doing is pairing um, women MCs with women producers, you know, beat producers. Um, so I'm going to try to start a, a podcast of sorts that will, um, that will start this conversation. You know, the other great thing about touring is that we, we've toured now all over Europe, uh, Turkey, Asia, um, South America. And this, you know, all of a sudden these communities that before used to be like, okay, you know, this, this weird indie rock community in Detroit and, in uh, you know Bloomington, Illinois, and you know that those used to be my communities, and now the community has really grown into you know women MCs coming out of Istanbul and stuff, and um, and uh, so I feel like that's such again a really privileged position to be in, where I can kind of draw lines and connect different people in the industry. So 
Um, so that's my next thing. Before we do a new Tune Yards thing, I, I definitely, um, I just wanna now now be there. I, I have enough resources myself to be of support to women in the industry in that way. So, um, so that's what I'm hoping to do and learn Ableton Live. That's what I wanna do. <laughs> Meryl Garvis, thank you so much for Thanks, coming on Portia. The Future Live. That was Meryl Garvis of Tune Yards talking to Portia Sabin. I'm John Sepulveda. I'm filling in for Portia this week. We're going to have much, much more from the Future of Music Policy Conference. Stay with us. Yards with the song Gangsta. This is the future of what? A show about the music industry. I'm John Sepulveda, and this week for Portia Sabin. She's catching up at things back at Kill Rock Stars HQ after being in Washington, D.C. for a week. She went out for the Future of Music Policy Summit, and one of the most interesting conversations took place away from the main stage, back in the green room. That's where Portia spoke with Tim Quirk. Now, you might recognize Tim's name. 
He's the guy who fronted one of our favorite bands, Too Much Joy. And he explains how he went from fronting that band to ending up as an executive at Google. Here's that conversation. So today we're going to do a feature that we often do called How Did I Get Into Music? And we've interviewed so many really cool and interesting people about how they just got even into this crazy music business to begin with. So, Tim Quirk, tell us your story. Everything in my life has been an accident. <laughs> most, most of them have been happy accidents. So the way it's my adventure started drunk on a swing set at my old elementary school when I was in high school with a guy, Sandy Smollins, who eventually became the bass player in the band we formed, Too Much Joy. The town we were growing up in, Scarsdale, had this history of bands uh like high school bands would play the high school dances and it was all rich kids with synthesizers just absolutely mauling led zeppelin and other (laughs) classic rock songs and we were getting drunk one night we're like these high school dances suck it'd be so much better if someone would play some clash and then we sort of had this aha moment we're like actually those songs don't sound that hard to learn maybe we could learn to play clash songs so we he started learning how to play the bass i started learning how to play guitar specifically to play cover, Clash cover songs at high school dances. Wow. And the flaw in our plan was we'd neglected to take into account the fact that we were the only people in our town who knew who the Clash were. <laughs> so as we were playing these Clash songs, eventually nobody knew what the hell it was. So we decided if we were going to get booed, we should get booed for playing our own songs. So we started writing our own music. And eventually, over the course of many years, we you know, were just recording demo after demo after demo. We finally compiled them into our self-released 1987 LP, which was called Green Eggs and Crack. That got assigned to an indie label in San Francisco. We put out a record for them. That got picked up and re-released by Warner Brothers. And then I was a major label touring and recording artist for the next 10 years. And I love that story because I was a huge Too Much Joy fan. Aww. And I that when I first met Tim, it was like my one starstruck moment where I was actually acted like a total idiot. And I have never done that with anyone else. Really? And I just like ran up to you. I was like, oh my God. I don't recall you ever acting like an idiot. Well, thank you. Because I remember it. I felt like a moron. But it was very exciting. And I've since I met you, I have actually just not run up to anyone else. Because I was so mortified. I was like, I will never do that again. So you're the one and only. Oh, well, <laughs> Tim thank Quirk, you. you're my one and only. Well, hopefully I wasn't too much of a jerk in response. No, you were very sweet. Okay. It was. I think I was catching on a good day. You know, I, I know that it could be annoying when someone comes up to you and says, I love your work, but oh, 90% I, I know. of the time it's probably nice. Yeah, I never tried to be a jerk, in re- never intentionally was a jerk in response to that, but my compatriots and I did not have the best reputation as uh, nice people. Not, I mean, we were always nice to fans, but we could be jerks to other people in the industry. We did not realize at the time how small a business it was. Right. And we had a really bad habit of burning bridges before we'd actually crossed them. Right. Yeah. Well, tell us what were the big differences? And I mean, granted, it was the late 80s, early 90s, so it's a very different business. But what did you find the biggest differences between being on an independent label and then being on a major? Wow, I could go on for a long time about that, so let me try to narrow it down. The first, what, what was most surprising to me was what the things I expected to be different that weren't. Generally speaking, the people at the major label had all gotten into it for the same reasons as the people at the independent labels. It tends to be music fans who want to be involved in the music business somehow. Either they're musicians themselves or they're not, And but you know, music is their life. So that was the same and was nice and gratifying. And there wasn't ever a moment when some cigar-chomping businessman came up to us and said, you know, ah, you got to compromise your morals here. This is, this, is, this, is, this is the moment you sell out. This is what you do. What it really was was this long series of gradual compromises that all felt like little things at the time, but you add them up after like a decade and you look back, you're like, oh my God, that was atrocious. It was this slow conglomeration of stuff to the, you know, toward the end of our tenure on a major label, we were in the studio and we'd gotten the habit of A, being whatever we'd just recorded with some hit on the radio to see like how we would sound next to it. I was like, this is not how, and I remember sitting in the studio at one point and looking at ourselves and going, this is not how or why we started making music in the first place. How did we wind up here? And it, what we found was it's a thing you in my experience anyway, that sort of selling out or compromising is a thing you do to yourself. It's not a thing that's imposed on you. But the one example I have of that, that it sounds mundane, but it was actually, it, it should have been my first red flag. The way you wind up sort of making decisions that you regret later on, it's usually 
and and I, I remember I was I was doing some freelance journalism and I was interviewing Smashing Pumpkins and they shared a very similar story. It's like these minor compromises where you theoretically have total creative control. And what happens when the label disagrees with a, dis a creative decision you're making, they don't say you can't do that. They just say, well, if you do that, you know, it's going to be three more months before the record can come out. And it's little things like that. So we had well, the record we'd made for Alias, our second album, there was a bonus hidden mystery track and it had no title. So we get signed to Giant Warner Brothers and they're re-releasing that indie record. And we get this letter of fax back when there were faxes were a thing from the lawyers at the label saying, well, you have to title this track. Like, it has no title. It's a hidden bonus mystery track. They say, well, we, corporate policy is you, you must have a title on the song. And like, well, but it doesn't have a title. So we go back and forth for a little while. And they're like, well, you know, you could, you could keep hashing this out, you know, but, you know, you're going to miss your release date. We're like, okay, we'll give it a title. So being the immature jerks that we were, we sent them, like, a three-page title that was basically <laughs> bonus hidden mystery track that had no title when we were a cool band on an indie label, but now we sold out and signed to a major label, and the lawyers are telling us we have to give it a title, so that's it. And then they come back, like, the next day, and they go, that won't fit on the cassette packaging. You need another title. And so we're going back and forth like this and we're trying, you know, we're trying to stick to our guns and like maintain our principles. And, but there's this thread of like, you know, you're going to miss your release date. And we had this whole, you know, we were recording the next album and we really wanted to get to that because we knew it was so much better than anything we'd done before. And we didn't really want to delay and have to keep continue touring on this record that, you know, we were artistically done with. Um, so eventually we were just, we're getting drunk and stoned in the control room and we look at each other, we're like, Oh, what the hell? Clash's bonus hidden mystery track was called Train in Vain, and they didn't have they didn't title it on their record. So what the hell? We'll just call it Train in Vain. That's the title. Just three words. It'll fit on the cassette packaging. Everybody wins. And a hilarious addendum to that story is, many years later, I get my publishing statement, and because the Clash never titled their song Train in Vain, we started getting the royalties oh for all my. their airplay for Train and, in Vain. And it all comes around full yes. circle. See, and then you really were a Clash cover yes. band. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So, That's but generally story. speaking the people the people were nice. I would say but in my in my experience the folks who more so these days than than those days, but generally speaking the folks who wound up with major label gigs rather than indie label gigs tended to be the ones who were more willing to make those compromises and the the I assume it was a similar process for them where there's this slow agglomeration over time where, you know, 10 or 15 years later they don't recognize who they used to be. Right. Right. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So then when you were done with that band, what did you do next? Well, the band never officially broke up. We just, everybody got married and had kids. And uh, I met my wife, who I met, she was working at Alias Records, the indie label in San Francisco that had put out our second record. And But the band was based in New York. So she, we fell in love. She moved to New York to be with me. And for like eight years, we kept talking about moving back to San Francisco. Um, and I kept saying, you know, this time next year, either the band will have broken up um, or it will have broken through. And either way, we'll be able to live wherever we want. And after eight years, I realized neither of those two things were ever going to happen. And for once in my life, I should sort of put the family ahead of the band. And it's like, if we want to move to San Francisco, we'll move to San Francisco. And the band, whatever happens to the band will happen to the band. So my wife and I moved to California. And we just started touring less and recording less, but never officially broke up. But eventually, it was time to get a straight job. And I was, I sort of eased my way into music journalism and I was doing that. And the plan was for me to be the house husband because I'd never had a real job. And my wife was going to, who had been in, you know, she'd worked at labels. And then when we were in New York, she was working in A&R administration at Sony. She was going to go back to work when our daughter started kindergarten. And for a variety of reasons, in 1999, when my daughter was starting kindergarten, the dot-com boom was happening. And I had this weekly column at the time. I was always looking for subjects to write about. I got a press release from Girly Action. Remember them? Mm -hmm. uh, and this smart music tech company, Listen.com, had hired Girly Action to do their press, uh, who reached out to people like me. I went to the website. And I, I remember calling Don and my wife into the office and saying, look at this. This is the first dot-com I've seen that makes sense. These guys are going to be bazillionaires. This is a great concept. They were, it was before Napster. And they were basically trying to be the Yahoo. It was before Google even. God, it's so, I'm so old. <laughs> they were trying to be the Yahoo of music, of MP3s on the Internet, a centralized location where you could go in, type in a search term, and find MP3s by that band because they were all scattered back at that time. There was no Rhapsodies or Spotify's or anything. And my wife, being very smart, she goes, I'm showing her this website. I'm all proud of it. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do my next column on these guys. And she goes, what's that? And she clicks at <laughs> she, she points at this word that says jobs, jobs, jobs. And she goes, click on that. So I clicked on it. And there was this page that said basically like, 
do you know everything there is to know about a particular genre of music? Can you write? Are you funny? Do you want health insurance and stock options? <laughs> and apply here. And Donna yes. goes, click on that. Yes. So I clicked on that, and I basically got called in for a job interview, I had, which meant I had to type up a resume. I typed up the first resume of my life, went on the first job interview of my life. I'm, mind you, I'm 35 now, right, at, at the time in 1999 when I'm telling this story. And I got hired on the spot, and they basically told me I was overqualified for the position. So I joined Listen.com as, a, as their sole R&B reviewer, and my job was to just write blurbs, like 30 blurbs a day, about random sole R&B bands on the internet who were putting up MP3s. Wow. And that turned into this, you know, now 15, coming on 16-year on adventure in the online music world where we eventually built and launched Rhapsody, the first on-demand music subscription service, got acquired by Real Networks. Before too long, I was an executive at a publicly traded company and then eventually left uh, Real and Rhapsody and went to Google and helped build Google Play and then spent four years there and learned a lot about other types of digital content distribution and was spent four years trying to figure out why mobile gaming distributors are making money hand over fist when the music business keeps contracting and eventually came up with an idea that I was like, I think I know how to help the music business make as much money as mobile gaming is. And raised a seed round and left Google and started my own company called Freeform. We're going to stop the conversation right there because if you want to hear about Freeform, there's only one way to do it. Become a subscriber to our podcast at Bandcamp. You can go to thefutureofwhat.bandcamp.com. And if you're already online, you might as well like our Facebook at facebook.com slash thefutureofwhat. And we're on Twitter at KRSFOW. Meanwhile, let's listen to a little bit of Too Much Joy. Here's a bit from their song, Long-haired guys from England. All the girls in the music biz have credit cards. They subscribe to biz, and they only want long-haired guys from England. From England. I'm John Sepulveda in this week for Porsche Saban, and we're going to end today with some music. This is Sheikh Amale Jabate. He's a musician from Mali, and he's known as the Griot of Washington, D.C., and he played ahead of NPR Music's listening party. It's what closed out the Future of Music conference this past October in Washington, D.C. Jabate plays the Ngani, a string to loot with animal skins. Here's Jabate.
L'instar de l'instar, dès qu'on sort le métro, crash, je me place en place avec l'as, parce que la casse, la masse, au son de cette passe. Piné des recherches, c'est pignon au pédé. Sheikh Amala Jabate performing during the wrap-up party at the Future of Music Conference in Washington, D.C. was sponsored by NPR Music. And that's it for this week. Music we heard came from Tunyard, Sheikh Amali Jabate. And of course, our theme song is Mind Your Own Business by The Mighty Delta 5. All the music you heard was used with the permission of the artists. The Future of What is produced by myself, Will Watts, and Anna McLean. Special thanks to Beta Petrol and Brent Asbury. Portia Sabin is the executive producer and host of The Future of What. She'll be back next week with a special show from the Portland CMJ Showcase. And hey, you can subscribe to our Bandcamp. Do it right now. Go to thefutureofwhat.bandcamp.com and support a show that supports music. I'm John Sepulveda. Have a great week.